Support for Starting Small comes from Human Scale, the leading designer and manufacturer of high-performance ergonomic products that help create a healthier work life. All of the products from chairs to standing desk and more are comfortable, easy to use, and sustainable, and great for either the office or the work from home environment. With an increase in shifting workplaces, comfort can be especially hard to find. As I run the podcast, I'm in front of my desk for hours a day, from scheduling, researching, interviewing, and more. Human Scale allows me to remain productive without the consequence of body stress to follow. Make sure to check out Human Scale at humanscale.com and use code STARTINGSMALL at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. That's code STARTINGSMALL at humanscale.com and enjoy the episode. Hello and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small, a podcast about brand development, entrepreneurship, and innovation in the modern world. In this episode, I'm joined by Edgar Blazona, founder of Benchmade Modern, custom sofas and sectionals without the typical extensive build time. Edgar, a high school dropout turned graffiti artist turned serial entrepreneur founded Modular Dwellings as well as True Modern. Edgar realized that production and custom furniture had a drastic timestamp for their customers. This inspired him to create Benchmade Modern, custom sofas delivered to you within five weeks. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Today, I'm joined by Edgar Blazona of Benchmade Modern. Edgar, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you having me. This is, uh, I've been looking forward to this. For sure. So I want to start out with your upbringing. So where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Oh, wow. Fun question. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I grew up in San Francisco for the most part. Um, you know, I had a pretty normal childhood. Um, I grew up with a family of, um, you know, entrepreneurs and and really in the in the building and construction business. Okay. And, um, you know, we remodeled homes and designed homes and all that. I think that's where I got my kind of my knack for design. Um, I'll tell you as like my childhood, uh, book was actually a book called high tech, which was all about industrial modernism design. It was this great book about, you know, like how to, you know, uh, polish a sewer, you know, great, um, and turn it into a coffee table. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. And I, I just remember having that book forever. And, wow. Um, I think that was, that was kind of my start into design. Awesome. So with your family in construction, were they primarily in commercial or was this resident? What was it? It was mainly residential and, okay. you know, we did, you know, we did, we built a lot of homes, but my, but my father in particular, um, would, would get these properties in San Francisco. I grew up in lower hate, uh, in the city, which was kind of like the ghetto at the time. And we would buy these homes and, and he would go in there and he would, you know, redo the interiors and, you know, he would have coffee tables made and have side tables made that fit the room. And it really kind of sparked my imagination. And I really thought like, wow, it's so cool. You can just like have something made. I, I think people don't realize how much around us is actually made by others. Yeah. Um, but in this case, we were having things custom made and, and, and it really, like, again, opened my eyes. It was, it was really cool. It was a good up- upbringing, for sure. That's awesome. So for yourself, would you say that you had an entrepreneurship mindset, say, selling products or lemonade stands or anything oh, like that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, watermelon, man. Get your ice cold watermelon. <laughs> that, that, was, that was my jam. I would push my skateboard around and I would sell off these slices of watermelon. And then later on in life, I became a, a graffiti artist in San Francisco and, and – um, and I grew up, you know, uh, uh, as a writer and, and, you know, graffiti writer. 
and I created a company. I really wasn't that great at graffiti, mm -hmm. um, but I was surrounding myself with some really, really talented artists. Um, but I was able to create a business out of it. And we ended up painting, you know, the majority of the nightclubs in San Francisco okay. and the, you know, Lollapalooza and the skate contest and all that. And, and I was really able to like kind of turn that into, it was called graffiti graphics at the time. And I was able to turn that into, into a bit of a, a business. Wow. So I saw that you ended up dropping out of high school. What was your overall grade school experience like and yeah. what led you to this decision? Yeah, you know, I came out of a a Catholic, um, you know, grammar school and went into a Catholic high school. Okay. And you know, I was a I was a second string quarterback. wasn't the first string quarterback, but I was a second string quarterback. And you know, and and but I just didn't fit in. You know, I just didn't yeah. fit in with these people. And then I ended up leaving there. I frankly I didn't spend a whole lot of time going to school. It just was a horrible experience. And I ended up by my art teacher basically said, you know, you should go to this place called School of the Arts. Um, mm. So I went to School of the Arts High School. I, you know, I left the Catholic school and went to School of the Arts. And um, I really found my people there. It was a really interesting change to be, you know, kind of more of a sports kid and then turn to more of a, you know, truly embracing the arts. Yeah. Um, and so I went to this great school and it was a lot like that TV show Fame from way back in the day. You know, there was you know, ballerinas and, you know, sculptors and painters and poets and all that. And, and it really um, was a really fun time to be in San Francisco. And it helped me, it helped me learn that I didn't want to be a painter, frankly, and I didn't want yeah. to be a flat artist. And, and I started doing more sculptural and then that kind of later on turned into furniture. Wow. So the school of the arts. And then, yeah, well, continue. let's, well, wait, then let's just step back because in, in reality, you, you brought it up and I, I don't talk about this a ton, but I, yeah, you know, nowadays I do think it's, it's a relevant thing to talk about for sure, especially given COVID and all the kids dropping out of school right now and all that. I made it to my senior year and I just realized my senior year of high school that, that I had had enough and it was time for me to move on. And, and um, so I took the California proficiency, which at the time I thought I was, you know, a badass because I was, it was a little harder than a GED, yeah. you know, oh boy, I'm smart now, you know, that sort of thing. Um, gosh, I'm so naive, but, but I left and I started a furniture company right out of high school. And uh, so I've been in furniture ever since. And, you know, and, and now looking back on that, in fact, you know, being the, a relatively young guy in the room, Maybe not so much anymore, but within the last 10 years, I'm the guy who has the most experience by far because I've literally been building or making or building a business in the furniture industry all of my life. For sure. So what was that first company that you founded right out of school then? And what time period was this? It was Blaze Designs. Okay. Um, and it was in the early 90s. And, um, I, I, I made custom furniture. Um, I really spent a lot of time like going into people's homes and, and working with them. It was my first real experience of like truly trying to design something for people, you know, and, and not just like, Oh, I'm going to design this and then sell it, but yeah. really like work with them and work within their, their, um, you know, their parameters. Um, 
it taught me a lot about selling, you know, how to, how to, how to sell yourself and how to sell furniture. Yeah. And um, it was good. And then later I started another company called 1994. Uh, coincidentally, it was in 1994. Okay. And the whole model was we would change our name every year. So the next year it became 1995 and next year, 1996. <laughs> and talk about being naive. You know, what a hassle. I mean, do you know what a hassle it is to start a company year after year after oh, yeah. year, you know, and go through all that? But it was a it was an exploration into, you know, really being on top of trend, right? And each year, you know, we kind of rebuilt the company to be, you know, more um, you know, in line with, with what's happening that year. Uh, but yeah. at the end of the day it proved, you know, too tough to kind of keep that pace. Yeah, so I'm curious with that company in 1994, um, renaming it each year, how would you market the brand knowing that you're starting from scratch every time? So you'd have to change yeah, it and well, completely remarket. Yeah. Well, think about this. So in 1994, we barely had computers, right? So there yeah. really wasn't no like great internet. So the marketing thing, you know, that we know today, I mean, man, that would be a disaster today. Oh, yeah. Um, but then you know, you really are just marketing within your own city, you know, or, or that sort of thing. So, so back then it wasn't quite the, the challenge that it might be today. Yeah, for sure. So I saw in 2002, you founded modular dwellings and this is kind of a yeah. different, this is a different category from just the furniture. This was backyard homes, correct? Yeah. You know, it was, backyard guerrilla architecture is really what I was trying to do. I was trying to create go. And again, going back to the, to the nineties, you know, we didn't, we weren't able to live in modernist homes um, through and through, right. You had, yeah. especially in the Bay area, you had these Victorians and you'd have a modern kitchen right? You'd have these Victorians, you'd have them filled with Eames furniture or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so I was trying to create, I was working for Pottery Barn at the time. I spent a lot of time going back and forth to, to Asia. And I was trying to, you know, what can I do that was still creative? Um, and it didn't, you know, get in the way of of, you know, like a non-compete or, or something like that. Yeah. And so I started making these buildings on the airplanes. I started drawing up these buildings on the airplanes. And this is back when the prefab, you know, kind of reemergence, you know, came on. And everyone was trying to make these 100 to $200 square foot buildings. And I really strive to be a designer that, builds it first and draws it later, so to speak. Yeah. Meaning, meaning that, you know, anybody can draw a pretty picture, but if you can't actually, you know, build it, then your design is somewhat useless. Right. So, for sure. so for me, I started making these prefab houses so that I could have a modernist experience through and through like from the moment you walked up to this building to the furnishings inside and the whole feeling of it was modernism and it really mm. it was a it was a change of pace to what i was used to seeing yeah. and so interestingly i became the shed guy 
in that era, there'd be, you know, there'd be these great, you know, New York Times stories and, you know, it'd be like this famous architect is making this prefab house. And, yeah. you know, these guys are making that prefab house <laughs> and always at the bottom. Oh, and Edgar Blazona, you know, and his prefab sheds, you know, <laughs> um, and I became the shed guy, not out of out of desire, um, but more out of I could build it. I could afford to build it. And yeah. so I could build it and make photos and, you know, and, 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 you know, and move these buildings around and take other photos and all that. So it was a really interesting thing. And it became, I guess, a good part of who I am. I, I ended up selling a set of plans on, on ready-made magazine and, and, um, because I wanted to build this building. Everyone wanted these buildings to be so cheap because they were small mm-hmm. and, I, when you think about it, they're just not cheap, you know, just because it's yeah. small doesn't mean it's cheap. And so as kind of my last hurrah and, and kind of, you know, giving back to, to my fans and the people who had been following me for forever on these things, I built a set of plans um, and you could build your own for basically $2,000 in materials. And wow. um, you see that it was called the MD 100 and you see these MD 100s still popping up all over the country today. It's pretty cool. It's probably, you know, couldn't be a good part of my legacy, like it or not. Yeah. So are these plans open to the public? So like a consumer purchases that and then they build it in their own backyard or how does that work? It, yeah, well, they used to, but then ready-made magazine went out of business. And okay. then so, so we didn't really want to kill it because we had such a, a cool following all these people would make these buildings and they would look totally different from one building to the other, you know, and the, they would change the window layout or the doors or paint them weird or, you know, all this stuff. So we just kept the plants up and you could just download them. I, I think they're still up today. There's, I've seen a couple sites every now and then I get an email still, you know, people asking for these plans and, and, uh, but you can still download them for free and um, which is cool. Awesome. You know, I like to see, I like to see people making things and yeah, you know, I've gotten several emails. Um, you know, I, I set out to make this. I've never made anything in my life, you know, and now I built a house, you know, I'm so proud of myself. Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. So how long would the average home take to build? Would you say then? Well, look, these aren't really homes. These are 10 by 10, 10 by 12 little, little sheds, (laughs) you know, but people would spend, you know, like a week or so, you know, okay. A, a real builder would probably spend three or four days, you know, but, you know, people would spend a week to a month, you know, building these things and, yeah, you know, time-lapse videos of them, you know, with snow coming and, you know, all that stuff. It's, it's really cool to see. Amazing. So moving on to 2005, you founded a company called True Modern, which I, I contrast that to Benchmade Modern today. Yeah. If you, you kind of can explain the concept behind True Modern and what you provided with that company. Yeah, True Modern was um, a bit of a wholesale model. At the time, I was designing for companies like, you know, Walmart and Target and these big box stores. And mm-hmm. I really needed to get back to modernism. You know, I, 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 I really, you know, I'm a modernist at heart. And yes, I can design to these, you know, kind of mass America styles and, and whatnot and things that sell really well in Walmart. Um, but I really needed to get back to kind of my roots. And so while I was working for another company, I started True Modern. Um, it was a brand um, at the time of modern kids' furniture. 
Okay. Um, I was just, I just gotten, I just gotten a kid and you know, the cliche, like I, I got a kid or, you know, I had a kid and, <laughs> and suddenly I realized there's no cool furniture. So I made my own. I mean, I such a cliche, but it's sort of true. That's kind of how it went. And so I started importing, um, modern kids furniture, uh, from Thailand and, uh, had, you know, a couple warehouses on one on each coast and was distributing out of that. And at the time I was, I was using, you know, things like, like, um, WebEx, right. And that yes. was like groundbreaking instead of actually going to the factory, I would use WebEx, you know, I had a, had a guy in India, you know, doing my order processing and bookkeeping. And, you know, I was just using these, these at the time, amazing tools, you know, now wow. it's like table stakes. Yeah. Um, but at the time I was this like innovator for, for, you know, creating this business while having another job um, by using all these tools. It was pretty cool. Yeah. That's awesome. So I heard you mention earlier about the non-compete thing. So did this work the same way then if you're working for that company and also working on yours as well? You know, I went to the company and I said, Hey, I really want to pursue, you know, my modernist, you know, sensibilities and, and, um, and I'd love to keep working for you. Um, and at the time we were, we were having great success. And so they allowed me to, you know, more than allowed me, you know, mm -hmm. um, even allowed me to, when I did have to fly, you know, over there for them, then I would work on my stuff too. And, and so it was a real, you know, it was a real good situation. They, they, they really helped me. And, and of course I stayed with them and, 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 you know, brought an enormous amount of sales uh, to the table. Awesome. So following your growing expertise in the design and furniture industry, we fast forward to Benchmade Modern in 2014. What inspired this idea? Yeah, Benchmade Modern. What's up? <laughs> you know, this was like Benchmade Modern came from, again, a little bit of a cliche, but I, I introduced sofas for True Modern. And I decided on, we get all these phone calls, you know, hey, can I have it, you know, 92 inches instead of 90 inches or 94, you know, something like that. And I, I thought, I'll try testing my best-selling sofa, my best-selling true modern sofa in these one-inch increments. And I'll see if they sell. And lo and behold, I started selling a ton of sofas. And I was, I was again, back in San Francisco and, and surrounded by the tech community and people raising money and, and all that. And kind of like, you know, watching that go by me, you know, everybody else was raising money except for, you know, us furniture and kind of, you know, hard goods and, you know, home products at the time. Now, now yeah. everyone is. Um, but at the time, no one was doing that. And, and I thought, I'm going to try to tackle the sofa business. Like, why does it take 16 weeks to get a sofa? Mm -hmm. I mean, is that ridiculous? 16 yeah. weeks, you know? And I, and I thought to myself, I don't even like the design 16 weeks after I bought it. You know, like, <laughs> I don't like the color anymore. Like, I, you know, that, that is ridiculous. And so... I set out to find out why, you know, and so I, I created Benchmade Modern. I had to build a small little factory in, in Los Angeles 
um, in order to raise money to be able to, you know, show everybody that I could do it. Um, and, you know, in the beginning, we started making sofas for like, you know, $300 extra, but we'd make you a custom sofa in, in 24 hours. Wow. And, and, and it was fun. You know, it was a lot of fun. And, and so Benchmade, you know, from that first initial factory, we were able to raise some money, you know, from there, people started to take us serious. And so really my passion is all about, you know, getting these timelines down to, to as little as possible. Um, and it's really hard. It's no easy feat. You know, it's, a, yeah. it's no wonder that some of the biggest manufacturers in the world are at 16 weeks. You know, it's, it's a really time uh, or, or a, a really challenging, um, um, you know, thing to, to try to create something in, in a quarter of the time. For sure. So how many collections did you first launch with and what was the product offering? Gosh, I think we introduced four maybe, and then, and then expanded to eight. I always thought eight would be the sweet spot. Mm -hmm. um, it turns out that that wasn't quite right, but I thought at the time, you know, eight perfect collections. And, and let me just say, you know, when we, when we think about sofas, we think in, or at least I do, I think in more of a collection based, you know, mentality, um, you know, each style, you know, comes in all the various shapes and sizes, you know, that a normal collection would have. And then on top of that, you know, in at the time was one inch increments and, you know, we're at five inch increments these days. Mm -hmm. Turns out, you know, maybe the one inch increment thing, there wasn't enough traction or it wasn't as important enough. Um, and the five inch thing seems to work. You know, I, I believe we have 12 collections now and you know, and, and some lighting and some rugs. And uh, we're really trying to, um, to expand our assortment a bit, um, you know, to, to try to be a little more of a, of a marketplace and, and, and really offer really great products, um, you know, to our customers. Awesome. So with a focus on customized furniture and a condensed time, I'm, I'm kind of curious, what were your main forms of uh, marketing? at launch oh at launch uh did you say marketing at launch what a what a crazy idea <laughs> <laughs> no we we did i mean we didn't i i i'm married to a pr person okay. right so yeah so i had a leg up in pr um you know marketing was this at the time was this gosh, this uncatchable thing. You just, you just didn't know how do those guys keep showing up in my feed and you know, whatnot. And, and um, so we focused on what we knew and, you know, we got a lot of press. Turns out that press is now called social proof. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it, and it really helped. It really helped us to put us on the map and, and, you know, it, and it, it's um, we were a smaller, uh, much smaller business at the time, but you wouldn't necessarily know it with the kind of press we were getting. Yeah. And I had been very accustomed to getting press, you know, all through my life. So um, I was a little bit more had kind of honed in on my craft, you know, and uh, understood, you know, how to tackle, um, you know, that, you know, really a marketing tool in itself. For sure. So, yeah, what is your main demographic would you say then 
Well, we have two, you know, um, we have, we kind of have a younger demographic, um, you know, it's split, um, male, female, um, pretty like 60, 40. Uh, it's a little hard to tell who's actually the end user, uh, of our, of our product. When we look at like the names on the credit cards, it's 50, 50, um, male to female. Um, but, but, you know, old furniture retailing lends you to believe that the, um, that the female is, you know, is the one purchasing more often than not. But I think that's yeah. kind of, I think our world is changing a bit. Um, and I think that it's, um, you know, so I, I, I think that's, it. as far as the age goes, um, uh, you know, we have that 30, you know, 28 to 36 range in there. Mm -hmm. But then I think based on our pricing, uh, we tend to skew to the later years of life. Okay. You know, the, like the 40 to 60 range. Yeah. And I, I really truly believe that's, that uh, that's just a, um, you know, has a, a lot to do with our price point. You know, when you're, you know, 30 buying a $3,000 luxury, you know, extra great quality product isn't, isn't necessarily high on your priority list. Yeah. You know, a, a, you're trying to get out of the Kia, you know, but, but, <laughs> you know, maybe you want to get into like a $1,200 sofa, something like that. Yeah. So I read that starting out, you would deliver sofas on your personal truck to save on shipping uh, costs. I, I, I yeah. really honor and respect that. That's amazing. How long did you do this for? And was there a limit geographically that you would travel? Oh, I have a great story to tell you. If we got a short amount of time, I'll tell you a great story in this. this, this yeah. I have two great stories, actually. This was the greatest thing. So I decided <laughs> that, I mean, we were struggling, right? And, and yeah. so, you know, to deliver a sofa is like, you know, $250 to $500, you know? And I was like, okay, I'll deliver all my own barrier sofas, right? And this, I will also get into people's homes. I'll be able to talk to the customer. I mean, talk about like getting deep into the business, right? I could just immerse myself in these people's homes and these people's lives yeah. all like under the guise of the delivery guy, you know, such <laughs> a hack, right? Yeah. So, so I would pull up to these people's homes, you know, one guy, I remember this so clearly, he, I, I get there, you know, it's just me, you know, he, he ordered curbside delivery, which is, kind of uh you know they literally drop it off on the curb in the box you know with the pallet and say see ya right yeah but i would i would deliver these and say okay you bought curbside but hey i'll help you carry it in no big deal like i'll unwrap it for you i'll help you carry it in you know i'd really delight people but this one particular guy got there and he said i bought white glove delivery and i'm thinking no you didn't i know exactly what you bought because i actually have the invoice you know i'm not just the delivery guy but i didn't tip my hat and so <laughs> i said well sir i'm happy to help you you carry it in you know and he says oh i got a bad back you know all this <laughs> stuff you know this big sob story right yeah and at the end of these experiences i would always say to these guys i would say well, thank you, sir. And I reach out my hand, which was like kind of weird anyway. Like what delivery guy reaches out his hand and like shake her hand to, <laughs> to say thank you, you know? Yeah. But I would do it just to see how they would react. 
And then I'd say, well, you know, I'm actually Edgar Blazon. I'm the designer and, and, and owner of the company. It was really great to meet you. And I appreciate it, you know, and this <laughs> one guy's face was like, Oh my gosh, I have been such a jerk to this guy. <laughs> I, I was like the worst person ever. He knew it. I knew it, you know, and I really felt at the time, like, you know what, like, like I did, I did what good one for like all the delivery guys out there in the world, you know, maybe that guy won't be such a jerk next time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Totally. And then one, one other time, I'll, I'll, just a real quick one. Mm -hmm. One other time I was dropping off a sofa in Palo Alto and these people started asking me all these questions and they started asking me like really pointed furniture questions. And I said, now, wait a minute. Now, who, who are you? Who are you? You know, you, you guys are asking these questions that are just too good. And they said, well, um, we've just started this company called House, <laughs> and and uh, we're trying to figure out if we should, you know, sell sofas on it or not, you know. And this is House, like this wow. is what has become like House.com, you know. Yeah. But I just happened to be delivering to their Palo Alto home, <laughs> so I ended up being their first, uh, you know, big, um, you know, big ticket, big piece of furniture. Uh, test um, that they ended up uh, selling on their site. Wow. So those days really worked out for me well. That's amazing. Looking at Benchmade Modern today, what would you say separates your company from competitors then? Well, again, we're really focused on our timeline. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's number one. And number two, um, I am really proud of our materials what what most people don't understand about upholstery is a lot of its quality is all about what's under the hood and so i learned a long time ago put the best foam you possibly can put in the sofa put the best feathers put the best trillium you know just the best springs all of that stuff put the best you can inside and um you you will you will take back the least amount of sofas in returns so i think that that has always been something that i strive for um you know what you know what what other company out there does that there's not many you know they yeah. they cut corners that way because it can't be seen but that's what brings the sofa back unfortunately that creates a more expensive sofa you know so so we really are, you know, we're sort of in that luxury, you know, um, higher end uh, price point because of it. But people love our stuff and, and, um, and that makes me feel good uh, that we're producing a great product. And, and I can be proud, you know, my friends order sofas and, and I know that they're going to last. They're not just going to break down and I'm going to have that embarrassing moment with them <laughs> when I have to, you know, take their sofa back. Yeah, amazing. From a consumer perspective then, what does the order process look like from the beginning to end? You mean from what they see? So like if a consumer's on the website, they want to order a yep. couch, what does that process look like? What can they expect? Yeah, yeah. So um, we want them to order swatches first. Like that's that's a big thing for us. Mm -hmm. And we know, so we, we put together this beautiful box. We're first ones in the door um, with a beautiful box. And we are signaling to the customer Hey, hey, like we mean business. You can take us seriously. Like this is going to be a great product. And that's that's our very first touch point. And then, you know, of course, then we market to them a bit along the way. 
we also have these printouts and and if you haven't you know i don't know what your stuff is like but but you know go on our site go to one of the product page hit the printout button and i send you this like full page piece of paper this huge piece of paper the size of a sofa and you lay it out on the floor and you see if it fits your room fits you know fits your family you know we get pictures of you know people sitting on it side by side by side on the floor <laughs> you know the husband lying in between the arms making sure he can fit for a nap you know that sort of thing <laughs> and so we that's that's another touch point right we're just trying to say like hey like let's make sure it fits before we before we deliver it to you. They don't necessarily know that, but we know that. Like, let's make sure it fits so we don't take a return based on it didn't fit your room. Yeah. And then then you order the sofa and um, and then we start sending you little little emails along the way of when, you know, hey, your sofa's in, you know, production and it's in sewing and, you know, all along the way to try to try to um, you know, kind of keep you informed. And um you know, all the way to your door and, and, you know, on a good day, we reach out to you even after and say, Hey, you know, how'd you like it? Um, I hope you love it, you know, just as much as we did. And we'd love to see a picture of it in the, in its room and in its space. Awesome. Well, I like to conclude each episode with this. If you could share one piece of advice with an aspiring entrepreneur, what would that be? Maybe something you've learned or regret just anything. Yeah. Wow. Boy, one, <laughs> you, couple it's fine <laughs> yeah. okay a couple great um as a startup as a venture funded startup you know the, the the biggest thing that i had to learn was to be able to take the highs and lows like on the same day you feel like you're going to be a bazillionaire and conquer the world yeah and then a phone call just a little bit later is the exact opposite. And so writing, writing as a, as a startup founder, writing that roller coaster can be very, very draining and difficult. Um, it's, it's a real, it's a real challenging time. So I always, you know, I always advise, you know, new startups and, and founders to really, you know, understand that getting into it. The next thing that I, I try to instill, and I'm probably my own worst enemy on this, is I, we, we all think we know everything. And we think, gosh, you know, this business is going to be this way and this is how it's going to be. And, 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 you know, it changes, it changes year over year. And, and you really have to be prepared to let it change. Um, and when you don't, let it change you often fail and i think that's a real you know it's something that i've had to take on the chin several times you know and and i have to remind myself still to this day that you know things change the world changes the design and trends change the shipping models change we just have to be flexible um to you know allow our businesses to thrive with all this change and when we just pound our fist down and say nope it's gonna be this way you know that's uh when a failure is coming soon for sure well edgar thank you so much for joining me and to the listeners out there make sure to check out benchmade modern at benchmademodern.com yeah thank you it was fun retelling some of those stories i appreciate it uh for sure hey thank you for listening to this episode of starting small if you would Leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. 
Also, follow Starting Small Pod on social platforms to keep up to date on future guests.